episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. We're going to move on now to the John Duckett Memorial Lecture entitled Innovation by Necessity, Improving Eurodynamics for Children with Spina Bifida. Our presenter will be Jonathan Routh, Associate Professor, Duke University Medical Center. Thank you all very much for uh, the opportunity to give this uh, talk today. Thank you to uh, the AUA and to Dr. Yerkes for extending this invitation. I'll be talking to you today on some of the challenges and conundrums we face in tackling urodynamics in children with spina bifida. These are my disclosures, primarily focused on the CDC-funded uh, work that I do for benchmarking activities as well as the umpire trial, which I'll mention in a bit. In the next 15 to 20 minutes, I'd like to talk to you today about a variety of things. Again, urodynamics is the global theme, but I'd like to give you some kind of context of where we began. I'd like to give you some kind of context for where at least I think we are currently and where I hope, perhaps with a little bit of help from our friends, we can proceed to in the future. In general, it's helpful for this kind of conversation, I think, to begin discussing things that perhaps we can agree on. I think most of us would agree that urodynamics testing is a guide for managing the urologic care for children with spina bifida. I think many, if not most of us, would agree that it is a crucial guide for doing that. I think we can all certainly agree that urodynamics is complex. The data streams themselves, how the procedures are performed, how we interpret how those procedures are performed can be a challenge. And in general, my, uh, excuse me, my statistician and, uh, and engineering colleagues like to tell me that machine learning is a tool that can actually be quite useful and is quite promising for analyzing complex data, in this case such as urodynamics. I think we can also all agree on the concept that urodynamics, at least in its current state, is well derived from the work of giants that have preceded us in this field. I have here the, the paper that I think, all, I would hope, all of us know in this, uh, this room, a 1981 article by Drs. McGuire and Dr. Weiss and colleagues, where they investigated children with what was then dubbed myelodysplasia, which we now refer to as spina bifida. What they found was that a cutoff of 40 centimeters of water pressure, they then dubbed it the variously urethral leak pressure or the urethral opening pressure in that article. What they found was below that, children seemed to do well above that cutoff, children didn't do so well. The majority of them, 68% in their series, had upper tract reflux, and the overwhelming majority had hydroureteronephrosis, significant dilation of the entire upper tract. This was then followed a year later, or excuse me, a few years later, uh, by pioneering work from Bauer and Reddick and colleagues in Boston, who found a different angle to focus on, specifically detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. And what they found was that 72% of patients with DSD, as demonstrated on needle electrode studies, developed hydronephrosis. And interestingly, they actually went a step further and noted that this hydronephrosis could improve with interventions such as clean and catheterization, which at that point was still relatively new in the field, only been out for about 10 years or so, or creation of a surgical vesicostomy. Based on this and subsequent work that come, has come out since that time, 
We have turned urodynamics into the basis of bladder management in most of our children with spina bifida. Now, there may be some debate about whether we should do that in a proactive manner or a reactive manner, but by and large, I think everyone in this room who treats children with spina bifida would agree on the fundamental value of urodynamics in managing those children. Factors such as neurogenic detrusor reactivity, detrusor sphincter dyssynergia, compliance or more importantly, non-compliance, all of which are measured via urodynamics, form the basis of modern, again, proactive or reactive bladder management. And this has been demonstrated and noted in multiple publications over the last several decades. But there may be perhaps some trouble in paradise. As was recently noted in an excellent review by Weaver and Zedrick et al. from CHOP, Pediatric urologists, it turns out, are fundamentally incapable of predicting renal deterioration, which ultimately, I would argue, is really what we care about in these children, among children with spina bifida. We simply can't get from point A to point B. It turns out that we are very consistently inconsistent in our interpretation of urodynamics. The Vanderbilt Group, led by Ann Dudley, recently uh, published a paper looking at six clinicians, all of whom had practiced at one center for quite some time, many of whom had trained at that same center. Among these clinicians, who I think it's reasonable to expect would be a homogenous group, they're nothing but homogenous. For those of you who are not familiar with the, the statistics I have up here, an R-squared value or a correlation coefficient ranges from zero to one. Zero being there's no relationship whatsoever, one being we have perfect agreement. In this case, at detecting neurogenic detrusor of activity, which ostensibly should be relatively easy to pick up, it's not. They disagreed actually the majority of the time. We had at best weak agreement. Detecting DSD was even worse, essentially as close to no agreement whatsoever as one can get. The same group then followed that up, this time with 14 raters over seven centers. The idea being that, well, perhaps there's something quirky about our group. No, in fact, there's not. Slightly different coefficient here, a modified kappa fly score. Uh, but again, the same range, zero to one. And you see a very consistent theme here. It turns out that actually we just simply are not very good at deciding homogeneously, consistently, that we actually have NDO and DSD, among other things. That then raises the question of perhaps we should be doing a better job of learning from our mistakes. When the CDC got a group of us together to form the umpire trial, one of the things that we thought we could do was to define bladder severity, at least in a relatively subjective manner, lumping patients into low risk, high risk categories, and everyone else gets kind of lumped into the intermediate risk in between. This was the fundamental basis of this study. And it turns out we're not even very good at that. In the initial review written by Stacey Tanaka, we had 50% agreement among raters, which I think we would all agree is not where we want to be. Again, the umpire trial is, at the time, nine of the best centers in the country doing this type of thing. And even among that level of expertise, we couldn't agree half the time. Dr. Yerkes actually wrote up a, a follow-up accompanying paper to that, demonstrating what we did to get better. We changed our aerodynamic risk criteria to eliminate some of the points of contention. We began a formal review and coaching process. And with that, and this was hours and hours and hours, if not days and weeks of work over a period of many, many months, 
we got to 87% agreement. We're doing better, but I think we would all agree that's not where we want to be. And it's worth remembering that this bad data has an impact on our patients. Urodynamics, again, we've all agreed, is the cornerstone of neurogenic bladder assessment. By definition, what that means is that changes in urodynamics interpretation lead to changes in treatment. We don't just do urodynamics for the sake of doing the urodynamics. We do it because it guides what we do to children. And those treatments convey life-altering consequences to our patients. Perhaps it's increased risk of constipation from beginning an anticholinergic. Perhaps it's a child who now has to be catheterized at school for CIC regimens. Perhaps it's dealing with a complication or a bladder stone from a surgery that was performed because of a high-risk bladder, which may or may not be reproducible. Thus, I would argue in our current state, in 2023, we have great promise and disappointingly poor performance. We are inconsistent, we are heterogeneous, we are not reproducible, and frankly, we are unreliable in our ability to determine or to perform this very crucial test. And I would argue, and I would ask you, I should say, is this the best that we can do? What if there were an alternative that we could potentially put forward of a different way of doing things? And I would argue that we have that alternative now. We all do this on a regular basis. I'm willing to bet everyone in this audience has ordered or interpreted at some point in your career what you see behind me on the screen. An EKG is a pretty simple thing to order. It's a pretty common thing that we all get. And I can tell you offhand that this particular EKG has a normal sinus rhythm and it's normal. Why? Well, my ACLS days are a little bit behind me at this point. I may be a bit out of date. But I know this because it says so in very big letters right when the CCG was printed out because there's an algorithm in that machine that automatically tells me what's going on in that patient. Now, this is going to be looked at by a cardiologist. There will be some quality control mechanisms involved. But if the cardiologist can do it, why can't we? Can this be applied fundamentally to urodynamics? I would argue it already is. As a proof of principle study, Scott Wang and the Boston Children's Group have done a, a, essentially a pilot study in an attempt to detect neurogenic detrusor overactivity. You can see their, their publication here. One thing that is nice as an aside about these, uh, these papers, they always have very cool graphics. As a, as a health services researcher, the graphics on these are fantastic. But what they're trying to get at here is, in a, X, or excuse me, a five-fold cross-validation model, the group was able to determine that the algorithm correctly predicted, correctly identified NDO events 81% of the time. That's pretty darn accurate and pretty darn good, particularly for a pilot study. With a sensitivity of 77 and a specificity of 81%, coming out of the gates, that's pretty strong work. Our own group at Duke followed that up with a similar type of study, slightly different uh, technical uh, details. But again, the concept was to detect and predict NDO that had been identified by a human user can the machine replicate what we're doing? And it turns out we can actually do that quite well. Using a multi-dimensional time-windowed model, uh, looking at all three channels of the, uh, the UDS, we're able to achieve an accuracy of 92% and very good sensitivity and specificity both in the 80s. I think Dr. Duckett would be pleased to know that uh, his institution of CHOP is actually doing some really pioneering and quite fascinating work in this as well. 
Jack Weaver and Greg Tajan recently published this paper looking at four different models, or I should say this will be coming out next month's uh, Journal of Urology, looking at four different models to compare imaging data, clinical data, and urodynamics-derived data. And what they found was the ensemble machine learning model had a much higher accuracy of 70% compared to the clinical beta, uh, data-based uh, model that we currently use of 61%. In other words, the machine learning model was able to accurately predict severity of bladder score, which I would argue is a bit more interesting than just NDO alone, than the clinical data on which we currently make that judgment. Now, it's important to note there are current limits uh, to those models. All of these that I've described for you are based on supervised learning. What that means is that they're essentially deferring to human judgment as truth. Is this spike an NDO episode, or is it a cough or a sneeze or a child who's squirming on the, the bed? The ultimate judge here was the human. Therefore, it is unable to account for what humans don't know to look for. And, and again, not to get too you know, Rumsfeldian, for those of you who remember the Bush uh, administration on you, but it's important to realize that there are things that we know, and we know them to be true. Those are our known knowns. There are things that we know that we don't know, referred to as the known unknowns, and there's things that are a little bit scarier, which are the things we don't know that we don't know, the unknown unknowns, if you will. Supervised learning models are blind to unknown unknowns. In an attempt to overcome that, our group has attempted to link essentially all of our machine learning work to biological outcomes. As you can see here on the area under the curve models, we have a ways to go. The four endpoints I've shown here are whether or not the patient had a UTI, whether they had a febrile UTI, whether there's a change in hydronephrosis over time, and whether they're worsening hydronephrosis in particular. What those found in all cases was that urodynamics plus the clinical data was able to perform better than clinical data alone, very similar to what the CHOP group found. The challenge being that the best model predicted worsening hydronephrosis with an area of the curve of 0.7, which means we have a ways to go. One of those ways is to look at image identification. I think we can all agree that the image on the left looks pretty good and that the image on the right, not so much. But how do we teach an algorithm to define those? And more importantly, when it's not this blazingly obvious, how do we teach an algorithm to pick up on those very subtle signs that may be predictive before it's too late, which in this case on the right, it may be. One of the other ways we're looking at this is how to better define compliance. We could probably do better than pressure at the end minus pressure at the beginning, divided by volume. That's the way that most of us look at it, but there are changes here. There's infill noncompliance, there's total fill noncompliance, there's inflection points along the way, sometimes multiple inflection points. And an algorithm can do a better job of fitting our area into the curve, our tracing, to a line than I would argue our human eyes can do. Likewise, is NDO really just NDO? Is there more to this than we actually can currently recognize? And that's something that perhaps an unsupervised learning algorithm may be able to tease out that we don't necessarily see. So varying the definitions of area under the curve of each contraction, the slope of the uptick and of the, the backfill, the amplitude of the contraction may hold keys to predicting those biological outcomes, which ultimately is what we care about um, in our patients. So 
this then leads to the question of, are we ready for prime time? <laughs> That's easy. Hey, I actually wrote this talk. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. Um, but we live in a world where we're getting pretty darn good at artificial intelligence and machine learning, but we're still early. Those of you in the audience with, uh, you know, my level of gray hair or perhaps a bit more may remember Pong or flip phones or Palm Pilots, although I will point out that my teenage daughters pointed out to me when I was showing them these slides that apparently flip phones are having a comeback. It's very odd to me. Regardless, the point is we've come a long way since those times. We now have more computing power on people's wrists than we had in entire rooms just a few decades ago. And so I'll leave you with some things to ponder. As Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, once said, there are five exabytes of information created between the dawn of civilization through 20, uh, excuse me, through 2003. That much information is now created every two days. I would argue that we are doing Eurodynamics more frequently, we are doing them in more patience, and we are hopefully going to learn a lot more from those Eurodynamics as we come through this. Alan Turing once said, perhaps instead of trying to produce a program to simulate the adult mind, why not start out like a child's? We can then educate that childlike mind into hopefully something that's a little bit more interesting over time. And lastly, as a bit of a warning note, the author Mikesh Barar says, in God we trust, AI models must disclose their training data. It is crucial to know how these models are derived, how they are trained, how they learn. In the case of ChatGPT, are they primarily learning from Reddit forums and some of the sometimes rather interesting conversations there? Is this being, for example, trained by an institution where flow rates going in are absurdly high and patients are therefore going to be biased towards high-risk bladders purely because they've got a fire hose connected to the catheter? Are we seeing differences in these patients? Are we seeing, for example, a very high-risk, high-surgery utilization UDS cohort that may be a bit different from what we all see in our clinics. In terms of take-home messages, I would leave you with Eurodynamics, and I hope I've proven this to you today, has great promise. The ability to characterize the bladder beyond what we as humans bring to this with cognitive bias. Sometimes we see the patterns that we want to see, that we have been trained to see. UDS also has great shortcomings at the moment, and we must do better for our patients. This is an obligation. Machine learning has potential to improve your dynamics. It is not yet ready for prime time, and it is still early, but stay tuned. I think we're going to make great progress in this front. Thank you all very much.